Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garday, socially distancing from Queens, New York. I'm Adam Feuerstein, locked down in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robin, sheltering in place in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, April 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to switch up our usual format and start with a lightning round. We'll serve up rapid-fire takes on the public perception of the drug industry, the visibility of CDC and FDA officials, President Trump's motivations, and Martin Shkreli. Next, we'll have a conversation with Wall Street analyst Brian Scorney about the impact of the pandemic on the business of biotech and his skepticism about a closely followed treatment for COVID-19. Then we'll talk to our stat colleague Casey Ross about the pandemic's implications for privacy and how it may compare to the post-9-11 period. Before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Adam, Damien, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. That's right, Rebecca. At a time when STAT is making all of its coverage of the coronavirus crisis free, we really appreciate the support of our subscription business. For example, this week, our colleague Kate Sheridan had a really interesting story about some very positive first quarter numbers for biotech venture capital and how maybe people shouldn't get too far over their skis in terms of thinking that everything is normal in that world because the effects of the COVID-19 shutdown are very likely to be present in the second quarter. So you can help us do more reporting like the story that uh, Kate wrote this week. And you can do that by subscribing to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. As a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year using the code POD. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus And thanks, as always, for being a Read Out Loud listener. It feels like we haven't done this forever, but let's do a lightning round. All right, so let's begin by talking a little bit about public perception. CNBC conducted a poll among swing state voters, asking them to rate the performance of various entities in the world in terms of responding to the coronavirus outbreak. So one of the options was your employer, which got a 77% approval rating. Another was American companies, which got a 73% approval rating. However, when it came to drug companies... Approval was just 42%, which means, of course, that disapprove was 58%. So the bright side of this for the drug industry is that at least they beat the media, which got a 39% approval rating. That was very depressing. (laughs) When I saw this survey that we being collectively, we in the media are polling behind the drug industry in terms of the way that we're, you know, handling this coronavirus crisis. Whenever I look at poll results like this, I always think about the wording of the question. And I really wonder if the question had been asked uh, about science companies, if you would have gotten a different approval rating compared to drug companies, which can sometimes sound sort of ominous and evil. That's a really good point. And I think a lot of people in the drug industry, whether statedly or or just implicitly, are looking at things like this as an opportunity. Um, I know our colleague Matt Herper had an interview uh, this week with George Yankopoulos, the, the top scientist at Regeneron. And he gave, I think, what was meant to be a kind of rousing call to arms for his colleagues in the drug industry to use this opportunity or to use this crisis as a means of, of showing people that drug companies, in addition to charging lots of money for various things, invent therapies that in many cases can can treat disease. And so that 42% number maybe is is a benchmark to, to build from for these people. Yeah, and I think this also 
goes to the you know to the larger problem with the drug industry in that a lot of people even even you're seeing uh, comments or, or responses to some of the efforts that the pharmaceutical industry biotech industry are doing to, to develop medicines for COVID-19 that there's this worry that there that the industry is going to try to profit from this pandemic and, you know and that obviously goes back you know years and years to drug pricing and all the issues that we have talked about you know on past episodes and we've written extensively about but there is still just a tremendous amount of distrust so let's move on uh, let's talk about government agencies and their visibility during this crisis so you're probably very familiar now with seeing President Trump and Anthony Fauci of the NIH up at the podium doing uh, frequent briefings but while they have been so visible uh, on the flip side, the officials at the FDA and the CDC have been totally sidelined. Yeah, I mean, that's particularly true at the CDC where, you know, we're used to that agency really being at the forefront of global health and any pandemic. I mean, if you remember back in the Ebola time or SARS where, you know, you, it was the daily briefing that you would get from the CDC and for COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic, they have been silent. And, you know, our colleague uh, Helen Branswell did an interview with Robert Redfield, who runs the CDC, the director of the CDC, and, you know, asked him flat out, you know, why the agency has been silenced. And I think his response was telling. Uh, he said, no, you know, we're, we're very active. We're operationalizing uh, the response. But operationalizing is not the same as being in the spotlight. And, you know, the FDA, I think, has been a little bit more visible than the CDC has been. I mean, you have heard and seen from Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner. But I, I want to pose a question to you guys. It does seem like particularly around um, chloroquine and other sort of treatments that are being proposed or used to treat COVID-19, that politics do seem to be, you know, kind of ejecting themselves into the science debate, the regulatory debate about COVID-19. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin uh, was on CNBC the other day and said that the president had approved several drugs for COVID, which sort of suggests that the White House does the approving of drugs rather than the FDA? Yeah, and I think what's problematic about that, just in terms of communicating information, is that, you know, I guess I don't necessarily expect Secretary Mnuchin to have a detailed understanding of the regulatory process of, of drug approvals, but I do expect FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn to. And the fact that guys like Mnuchin or, or Larry Kudlow have become the de facto spokespeople for the entire COVID-19 response task force or whatever it's called is problematic because their expertise lies elsewhere. And if they are the sole source of information that, you know, whoever is tuning into whatever cable news broadcast catches that day, I mean, then they have a chance. I mean, there's the possibility that somebody walked away from that Mnuchin interview thinking that Donald Trump had approved several drugs for COVID-19, which just isn't true. We're living in very extraordinary times right now. And so maybe you need to cut some slack and you have to expect politics to be injected into the debate about what kind of drugs to use. But what really worries me is if that becomes ordinary, if, you know, once we get through the COVID-19 situation and we get back to some normalcy, that politics continue to be a part of the FDA discussion, that would not be a good thing. So let's move on to a strange and perhaps unwarranted controversy. So this all started when the New York Times reported that President Trump has, quote, a small personal stake, end quote, in Sanofi. That is the drug maker that manufactures the malaria drug, hydroxychloroquine, which Trump has been uh, sort of aggressively 
promoting as a treatment for COVID-19 despite uh, minimal evidence. Yeah, this was a story that got blown up, I think, way out of proportion. You know, hydroxychloroquine is a generic drug. It's made, I think there are maybe a dozen or more companies that manufacture hydroxychloroquine. I think this idea that Trump is going to be profiting from this drug because of some, I take it it was some sort of mutual fund or some investment fund that has a stake in Sanofi is kind of going a little bit too far. Yeah, one reporter did some triangulation and and concluded that Trump's stake could be as small as $99 in Sanofi. The other thing that I thought was interesting about the response, I mean, it was sort of a cast of, of usual suspects of kind of like hashtag resistance people on Twitter pointing to this sort of anecdotal connection between Trump and and Sanofi. And in terms of people getting upset about it, my confusion was like, what we already know is that Donald Trump is promoting a medicine that is unproven for COVID-19 because implicitly he wants America to get back to work because he has this preoccupation with the stock price and and so on and, and, and its implications for his reelection. That in itself sounds irresponsible and dangerous enough to be mad about. We don't have to reach for these kind of tenuous connections to, for example, a mutual fund stake in a French drug company. Okay, so moving on, there is now a Martin Shkreli angle to the pandemic. Adam, please explain. Yeah, weren't we all waiting for a Martin angle to the coronavirus? Damien and I did some reporting this week, wrote a story about Martin, who, as everyone knows, is currently serving a seven-year sentence in federal prison for securities fraud. He basically made a pitch to the authorities, uh, let him out of jail for uh, three months so that he can work on a novel coronavirus treatment Damien, what did we conclude from this pitch? Well, you know, I would leave it to others to decide whether Martin deserves this special kind of 90s action movie dispensation to uh, save society. What I think is interesting, though, is that there is a very real and very serious public health reason for releasing nonviolent criminals from penitentiaries uh, around the country. I mean, here in New York, for example, it's it's uh, an issue that's discussed every day because the rate of transmission of coronavirus in prisons is is awful and, and it's really dangerous. But Martin isn't asking to be let out of his federal prison because of the personal risk of illness. What he's saying is that he is uniquely qualified to help find a treatment that, that might save the world effectively. And I think, I mean, you know, we, we spoke with Derek Lowe, who's a medicinal chemist and, you know, just looking at experts on Twitter who reviewed the non-peer-reviewed paper that Martin put out about basically how one could identify existing treatments that might help. It doesn't sound like he's bringing anything novel to the table that's not already being done and being explored and, and being put into effect by hundreds of scientists around the world. Good luck, Martin. The biopharma industry is working hard to develop new medicines and vaccines to treat COVID-19. But at the same time, these companies, like businesses around the world, have suffered massive disruptions due to the shutting of the economy. Joining us to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the business of biopharma is Brian Scorney, who is a senior biotech research analyst at the investment bank R.W. Baird. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So, Brian, uh, we have now seen dozens of biotech and pharma companies announce suspensions or halts uh, to clinical trials. I'm talking specifically about clinical trials needed to develop new medicines that are not related to the coronavirus. So how bad is the situation and what are the downstream effects that we should be thinking about? 
Yeah, so, you know, I mean, it, it's still early days, but we are seeing every day more and more companies announce either pauses to clinical trials, full stoppages of clinical trials. And, and you know, I mean, I think the downstream effect here is going to be to some extent dependent on how long uh, the shelter-in-place orders are in place and, you know, also the, the willingness of uh, participants to go into clinical trials. And I think this could vary from, you know, trial to trial, whether you need uh, to go into a hospital and be an inpatient, whether you can, you know, just receive a drug in the mail and, and fill out, uh, you know, patient reported outcome card uh, will really have a lot of variability. But, you know, it's, it's certainly going to be the case that when we look forward in a year or two, we're going to see a lot of uh, clinical trials come out with a need to analyze in the context of these studies being paused and try to understand, you know, there'll be studies that probably fail on a classical statistical basis, but, you know, there'll be analyses that take into account any impact to COVID. And, you know, we'll have to try to understand and regulatory agencies are really going to try to have to understand, you know, what happened uh, in these studies in the aftermath. So on the commercial side, drug makers, like all businesses, are social distancing and working from home, and that means that sales reps are grounded. First quarter earnings season will be here in a few weeks. So what impact do you think COVID-19 is going to have on the industry's revenue and profits? So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're monitoring prescriptions through, you know, IMS channels, and at least in the first quarter, it doesn't look like there's been that big of an impact. And, you know, I think that goes without saying because, you know, I think that most of the shelter-in-place orders really didn't start until kind of the middle of March. Um, so you got through most of the quarter. I think we probably will see a minimal impact in terms of first quarter numbers. The more interesting thing will be what companies will do in terms of guidance uh, for subsequent quarters. The most at-risk quarter, I think, is going to wind up being second quarter. And, you know, I would expect to see a lot of companies suspend guidance uh, on their first quarter call. You know, what the guidance is going to wind up looking like, again, it really is going to be reliant on how long these shelter-in-place orders are going to be out. So I wanted to ask you about deal activity in biotech, particularly mergers and acquisitions. We started 2020, as, as we do every year, with high expectations for takeouts and mergers, but few deals materialized in January and February. And then, of course, in March, uh, COVID-19 kind of shut down everything. Do you expect that there will be M&A while the industry is in this sort of pause? Or is deal-making kind of too difficult to handle over video conferencing? I mean, I think it certainly adds an element of difficulty. I'd be surprised if it gets paused entirely. Um, I'm sure you'll still see transactions occur, you know, with with the same frequency and normalcy that we're used to, I would be surprised. I mean, I certainly think there's a anticipation out there that when there's stability, you could see a, a very significant acceleration, right? I mean, um, the government's lending money out essentially at no interest. Um, you know, this will translate into, uh, you know, very low costs of capital for these large pharmaceutical companies who are already sitting on a pretty sizable balance sheet. So, you know, it's, it, it's a balance, right? You know, I think this is a problem across the world right now is value is is tough to dictate in this environment, right? There's a lot of uncertainty about what the economy is going to look like, what business as usual is going to look like. And I think that that creates a problem in terms of assessing value. Um, and I think this will translate to, to biotech too. Once you see some stability in the economy, when you see people getting back to work and we get an understanding uh, of what sort of uh, long-term impact this virus is really going to have, I would expect uh, biotech to exercise their low, low cost of capital to to start doing a lot of deals. Um, But for right now, you know, I think it's going to slow down. So, Brian, you've been cautious about remdesivir. That's the antiviral medicine that Gilead Sciences is developing to treat COVID-19 patients. Results from clinical trials of remdesivir conducted in China are expected very soon. Tell us why you're not optimistic. 
Look, I think remdesivir was originally put into development for Ebola, and they're different viruses, but there's a lot of comparisons we can make. I mean, they're both RNA viruses. The mechanism uh, of remdesivir is a very broad mechanism, so, you know, it should show, and, and it does in Petri dishes show, submicromolar potency uh, against um, SARS, against MERS, against Ebola, SARS-CoV-2. So, you know, there's applicability to looking at the Ebola data and, and trying to derive what, what we're going to get here. And, you know, I would just say the clinical trial in Ebola was not very favorable. There were, uh, you know, four active drugs, and it performed the worst of the of the four active drugs. You know, the question is, did it do anything? I think it's ambiguous if it had any effect in Ebola. Now, I think when you think about the the way this drug is used, it's an IV drug, and it's injected into the bloodstream, and that's where uh, Ebola virus is, is replicating. So if you had ambiguous results in Ebola, I think it's an even higher hurdle um, to really derive a benefit in a lung infection where uh, you really need to get drug concentrations into the Long, which has been, you know, a challenge across the development of, you know, antibiotics, antivirals, you know, for any respiratory um, pathogenic disease to begin with. So, so I think there's a high hurdle here because it's not really developed for this disease. It's sort of a Hail Mary, and I hope it works. I just think, you know, given the, the history uh, of, you know, drugs being retooled for a disease that they weren't originally developed for, you know, the likelihood is just just not high here. And I sort of think those pharmacological parameters that, that you know, I discussed is is another reason to kind of just be a little skeptical here that um, you're really not going to get a, a great impact. So finally, Brian, uh, we conducted a couple of reader polls this week uh, about next year's J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco. Uh, and what we found was that almost half of the respondents told us they would not be attending the big JPM week festivities come January, you know, with another 30% saying they were unsure about attending. You know, we obviously have debated a lot about the future of quote unquote JPM week. Um, but if it does happen next year, are you going? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think I would be in the camp of uh, we'll just have to wait and see. There's so many unknowns about this pandemic. You know, I'll, I'll be watching the data, you know, and if, if the pandemic has moved past us, I'll certainly be out there. You know, if we still need to take uh, significant precautions to avoid the impact on, on morbidity and mortality here, I'd, you know, I'd be up for skipping. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Next up, we're going to talk about the erosion of privacy during the pandemic and what we might expect in its aftermath. So just a few months ago, the biggest story in health tech centered around concerns about what Google and Facebook might be doing with patient-sensitive health information. Now, basically nobody cares about any of that, and Americans are being asked to allow unprecedented surveillance of their movement, their contacts, and even their temperature to try to save lives. Joining us to talk about this paradigm shift is our colleague Casey Ross, who covers health tech for STAT. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Casey, could you start by mapping out for us what aspects of privacy Americans are being asked to give up right now and how that compares to people in other countries hit by major COVID-19 outbreaks? Yeah. So Americans are being asked to voluntarily provide access to their uh, cell phone data on an aggregated basis so that disease trackers could figure out who is infected, trace the contacts of those people with others, and try to map out the transmission chains of how this disease is spreading. It compares to other countries like China and uh, Singapore and South Korea. Perhaps it's a little bit less invasive because those countries are using identifiable data 
from individuals that they're scraping cell phone information from, contacting them directly, forcing them to be quarantined. And in the case of China, they're even automating this so that a patient would get a color-coded response that would basically tell them, okay, you fit the criteria of someone who might have this, you have to quarantine yourself. I wanted to maybe zoom in on South Korea because a lot of the conversation in recent weeks has been about how that country sort of flattened the curve of the outbreak in an impressive way. And and there have been people urging the United States to to maybe adopt some of the things that they did over there. What in particular seems so effective? And does it sound like the kind of thing the United States could get behind? Yes. I mean, what they've been able to do is to triangulate different data sources. So they're using cell phone records in addition to credit card information to show consumers on a daily basis where Uh, infections are concentrated so that potentially they could avoid those areas. That is something that could be considered in the United States. You know, that's under active consideration, but it depends on the ability of the makers of these apps to get enough voluntary participation from patients, both healthy and those who have this, to be able to get the most accurate data on where this is spreading in real time. That's the tall order. So Casey, I guess you know, one of the arguments being made here is that you know, in order to save lives right now, these sorts of privacy trade-offs are reasonable. But what's going to happen after the apex of the pandemic? So in your piece, you made a really interesting comparison to the Patriot Act in the post 9-11 period. Can you spell that out for us? Yeah, I mean, that's the really interesting aspect of this. Are we going to trade privacy, you know, for protection against new viruses in the same way, you know, that we traded privacy for security following 9-11? That's permanently changed how we travel, the experience we have in airports, the fact that we've enabled surveillance on a wider basis of Americans in ways that they may not fully recognize by the government. So that's really the question. And in this case, you know, in order to reopen the economy to allow people to ease these social distancing measures and resume their lives, this may be a fundamental part of that trade-off. If we can track you, if we can tell you where infections are going to be happening, then maybe we can, you know, let you get back to your normal life. So that's something that people are really going to have to think about carefully in this. So as you point out in your piece, you know, at least with the Patriot Act, there was time to debate its implications. But with COVID-19, the virus is spreading so rapidly that there's just not time for a deliberative approach. How do you think that's shaping the future of our health data privacy? Yeah, right. This is all happening on the fly. I mean, you know, the Trump administration and technology companies are doing this very rapidly. You know, you have senators and other watchdogs who are sort of trying to peek over their shoulder and ask, you know, how are you, you know, using this data? How are you protecting it? How are you safeguarding it? But this is happening all very rapidly. And the precedents that are being set right now you know, may bleed uh, forward into the way this is uh, handled in the future. I think there's going to be a a need to revisit all of this once the dust settles to really think carefully about how this should be implemented in the future. So to maybe end on a more hopeful note, in your reporting, did you come across any efforts that are managing to protect privacy while also performing the necessary surveillance? Anything that might be a model for a middle ground or how to do this right? So MIT, Facebook, Mayo Clinic, and others have created a contact tracing app that would use aggregated phone data to be able to track who's getting infected and how the transmission chains are playing out in communities. And that could be effective because they are taking a privacy first approach. 
so that the data is scrambled in a way that individual participants cannot be identified, but you can still see where the infection is spreading within communities so people can get information on you know, particular areas to avoid and whether to observe social distancing or not. Casey, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Heisen Tempanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you're coping with the pandemic. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. 